Chapter Fourteen of No Clue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. No Clue by James Hay. Chapter Fourteen. Mr. Crown forms an alliance. If you've as much as five hundred dollars at your disposal, pin money savings perhaps, anything you can check on without the knowledge of others, you can do it. Hastings urged, ending a long argument. "'I? Take it to her myself?' Lucille still protested, although she could not refute his reasonings. "'It's the only way that would be effective. And it wouldn't be so difficult. I had counted on your courage, your unusual courage.' "'But what will it accomplish? If I could only see that clearly.' She was beginning to yield to his insistence. They were in the rose garden, in the shade of a little arbor from whose roof the great red flowers drooped almost to the girl's hair. He was acutely aware of the pathetic contrast between her white, ravaged face and the surrounding scene, the fragrance, the roses of every color swaying to the slow breeze of late afternoon, the long, cool shadows. He found it hard to force her to the plan and would have abandoned it but for the possibilities it presented to his mind. "'I've already touched on that,' he applied himself to her doubts. "'I want you to trust me there, to accept my solemn assurance that, if Mrs. Brace accepts this money from you on our terms, it will hasten my capture of the murderer. I'll say more than that. You are my only possible help in the matter. Won't you believe me?' She sat quite still, a long time, looking steadily at him with unseeing eyes. "'I shall have to go to that dreadful woman's apartment, be alone with her, make a secret bargain,' she enumerated the various parts of her task, wonder and repugnance mingling in her voice. "'That horrible woman! You say yourself, Mr. Hastings, she's horrible.' "'Still,' he repeated, you can do it. A little while ago she had cried out, both hands clenched on the arm of the rustic bench, her eyes opening wide in the startled look he had come to know. If I could do something, anything, for Byrne. Dr. Wells said only an hour ago he had no more than an even chance for his life. Half the time he can't speak. And I'm responsible. I am. I know it. I try to think I'm not, but I am. He recurred to that. Dr. Wells said the ending of Mr. Webster's suspense would be the best medicine for him. And I think Webster would see that nobody but you could do this, in the very nature of things. The absolute secrecy required, the fact that you buy her silence, pay her to cease her accusations against Byrne, don't you see? He'd want you to do it. That finished her resistance. She made him repeat all his directions, precautions for secrecy. I wish I could tell you how important it is, he said, and keep this in mind always. I rely on your paying her the money without even a suspicion of it getting abroad. If accidents happened and you're seen entering the Wallman, 
What more natural than that you want to ask this woman the meaning of her vague threats against, against Sloanehurst? But of money, your real object, not a word. Nobody's to have a hint of it. Oh, yes, I see the necessity of that. But she was distressed. Suppose she refuses. Her altered frame of mind, an eagerness now to succeed with the plan she had at first refused, brought him again his thought of yesterday. If she were put to it, if she could save only one and had to choose between father and fiancé, her choice would be for the fiancé. He answered her question. She won't refuse, he declared, with a confidence she could not doubt. If I thought she would, I'd almost be willing to say we'd never find the man who killed her daughter. When I think of Russell's alibi... Have we mentioned Russell? he protested, laughing away her fears. Anyway, his old alibi's no good, if that's what's troubling you. Wait and see. He was in high good humor. In that same hour, the woman for whom he had planned this trap was busy with a scheme of her own. Her object was to form an alliance with Sheriff Crown. That gentleman, to use his expressive phrase, had been putting her over the jumps for the past forty minutes, bringing to the work of cross-questioning her all the intelligence, craftiness, and logic at his command. The net result of his fusillade of interrogatories, however, was exceedingly meager. As he sat, caressing his chin and thrusting forward his bristly mustache, Mrs. Brace perceived in his eyes a confession of failure. Although he was far from suspecting it, he presented to her keen scrutiny an amazing figure. She observed that his shoulders drooped and that, as he slowly produced a handkerchief and mopped his forehead, his movements were eloquent of gloom. In fact, Mr. Crown felt himself at a loss. He had come to the end of his resourcefulness in the art of probing for facts. He was about to take his departure, with the secret realization that he had learned nothing new, unless an increased admiration of Mrs. Brace's sharpness of wit might be catalogued as knowledge. She put his thought into language. "'You see, Mr. Crown, you're wasting your time shouting at me, bullying me, accusing me of protecting the murderer of my own daughter.' There was a new note in her voice, a hint, ever so slight, of a willingness to be friendly. He was not insensible to it. Hearing it, he put himself on guard, wondering what it portended. "'I didn't say that,' he contradicted, far from graciousness. "'I said you knew a whole lot more about the murder than you'd tell. Tell me, anyway.' "'But why should I want to conceal anything that might bring the man to justice?' "'Blessed if I know,' he conceded, not without signs of irritation." So far as he could see, not a feature of her face changed. The lifted eyebrows were still high upon her forehead, interrogative and mocking. The restless, gleaming eyes still drilled into various parts of his person and attire. 
the thin lips continued their moving pictures of contempt. And yet he saw, too, that she presented to him now another countenance. The change was no more than a shadow, and the shadow was so light that he could not be sure of its meaning. He thought it was friendliness, but that opinion was dulled by recurrence of his admiration of her smartness. He feared some imposition. "'You've adopted Mr. Hastings' absurd theory,' she said, as if she wondered. "'You subscribe to it without question.' "'What theory?' "'That I know who the guilty man is.' "'Well?' He was still on guard. "'It surprises me, that's all, a man of your intellect, your originality.' She sighed, marveling at this addition to life's conundrums. "'Why?' he asked bluntly. "'I should never have thought you'd put yourself in that position before the public. I mean, letting him lead you around by the nose, figuratively.' Mr. Crown started forward in his chair, eyes popped. He was indignant and surprised. "'Is that what they're saying?' he demanded. "'Naturally,' she said, and with the one word, laid it down as an impossibility that they could have said anything else. "'That's what the reporters tell me.' "'Well, I'll be doggone!' The knuckle-like chin dropped. "'They're saying that, are they?' Disturbed as he was, he noticed that she regarded him with apparently genuine interest, that perhaps she added to her interest a regret that he had displayed no originality in the investigation, a man of his intellect. "'They couldn't understand why you were playing Hastings' game,' she proceeded, "'playing it to his smallest instructions.' "'Hastings' game? What the thunder are they talking about? What do they mean, his game?' his desire to keep suspicion away from the Sloanes and Mr. Webster. That's what they hired him for, isn't it? I guess it is, by gravy. Mr. Crown's long-drawn sigh was distinctly tremulous. That old man pockets his fee when he throws Gene Russell into jail. Why, then, isn't it his game to convince you of Gene's guilt? Why isn't it his game to persuade you of my secret knowledge of Jean's guilt? Why— So that— Let me say what I started, she in turn interrupted him. As one of the reporters pointed out, why isn't it his game to try to make a fool of you? The smile with which she recommended that rumor to his attention incensed him further. It patronized him. It said, as openly as if she had spoken the words, I'm really very sorry for you. He dropped his hands to his widespread knees, slid forward to the edge of his chair, thrust his face closer to hers, peered into her hard face for her meaning. Making a fool of me, is he? he said in the brutal key of unrepressed rage. A quick motion of her lifted brows, a curve of her lower lip, indubitably a new significance of expression, stopped his outburst. 
"'By George!' he said, taken aback. "'By George!' he repeated, this time in a coarse exultation. He thrust himself still closer to her, certain now of her meaning. "'What do you know?' he lowered his voice and asked again. "'Mrs. Brace, what do you know?' She moved back, farther from him. She was not to be rushed into anything. She made him appreciate the difficulty of getting next to her. He no longer felt fear of her imposing on him. She had just exposed, for his benefit, how Hastings had played on his credulity. He felt grateful to her for that. His only anxiety now was that she might change her mind might refuse him the assistance which this new and subtle expression had promised a moment ago. "'If I thought you'd use—' She began, broke off, and looked past his shoulder at the opposite wall, the pupils of her eyes sharp points of light, lips drawn to a line almost invisible. Her evident prudence fired his eagerness. "'If I'd do what?' he asked. If you thought I'd... what? Let me think, she requested. He changed his posture, with a great show of watching the sunset sky, and stole little glances at her smooth, untroubled face. He believed now that she could put him on the trail of the murderer. He confessed to himself, unreservedly, that Hastings had tricked him, held him up to ridicule, to the ridicule of a nation, for this crime held the interest of the entire country. But here was his chance for revenge. With this smart woman's help, he would outwit Hastings. "'If you'd use my ideas confidentially,' she said at last, eyeing him as if she speculated on his honesty. "'If I were sure that—' "'Why can't you be sure of it?' he broke in. My job is to catch the man who killed your daughter. I've got two jobs. The other is to show up old Hastings. Why wouldn't I do as you ask, exactly as you ask? She tantalized him. And remember that what I say is ideas only, not knowledge? Sure, certainly, Mrs. Brace. And, even when you arrest the right man, say nothing of what you owe me for my suggestions? You're the kind of man to want to do that sort of thing, give me credit for helping you. Even that pleased him. If you specify silence, I give you my word on it, he said, with a fragment of the pompous manner he had brought into the apartment more than an hour ago. You'll take my ideas... My theory, work on it and never bring me into it in any way? If you make that promise, I'll tell you what I think, what I'm certain is the answer to this puzzle. Win or lose, right or wrong idea, you have my oath on it. Very well, she said that with the air of one embarking on a tremendous venture and scorning all its possibilities of harm. I shall trust you fully. First, let me sketch all the known facts, everything connected with the tragedy, 
and everything I know concerning the conduct of the affected individuals since. He was leaning far toward her once more, a childlike impatience stamped on his face. As she proceeded, his admiration grew. For this there was ample ground. The newspaper paragraph Hastings had read that morning, commenting on her mastery of all the details of the crime, had scarcely done her justice. Before she concluded, Crown had heard from her lips little incidents that had gone over his head. She put new and accurate meaning into facts time and time again, speaking with the particularity and vividness of an eyewitness. Now, she said, having reconstructed the crime and described the subsequent behavior of the tragedy's principal actors, now who's guilty? Exactly, echoed Crown with a click in his throat. Who's guilty? What's your theory? She was silent, eyes downcast, her hands smoothing the black, much-worn skirt over her lean knees. Recital of the gruesome story, the death of her only child, had left her unmoved, had not quickened her breathing. "'In telling you that,' she resumed, her restless eyes striking his at rapid intervals, "'I think I'll put you in a position to get the right man, if you'll act. Oh, I'll act, he declared largely. Don't bother your head about that. Of course, it's only a theory. Yes, I know, and I'll keep it to myself. Very well. Arthur Sloane is prostrated, can't be interviewed. He can't be interviewed for the simple reason that he's afraid he'll tell what he knows. Why is he afraid of that? because he knows too much for his own comfort, and too much for his daughter's comfort. How does he know it? Because he saw enough, night before last, to leave him sure of the murderer's identity. He was the man who turned on the light, showing Webster and Judge Wilton bending over Mildred's body. It occurred at a time when usually he is in his first sound sleep, from bromides. Something must have happened to awake him, an outcry, something. And yet he says he didn't see them, Wilton and Webster. "'By gravy!' exclaimed the sheriff, awestruck. "'Either,' she continued, "'Arthur Sloane saw the murder done, "'or he looked out in time to see who the murderer was. "'The facts substantiate that. They are corroborated by his subsequent behavior. Immediately after the murder, he was in a condition that couldn't be explained by the mere fact that he's a sufferer from chronic nervousness. When Hastings asked him to take a handkerchief, he would have fallen to the ground, but for the judge's help. He couldn't hold an electric torch. And ever since, he's been in bed, afraid to talk. Why, he even refused to talk to Hastings, the man he's retained for the family's protection. He did, did he? How do you know that, Mrs. Brace? Isn't it enough that I know it, or advance it as a theory? Did 
I thought possibly Jarvis, the valet, told you? She ignored that. Now, as to the daughter of the house, there was only one possible reason for Lucille Sloane's hiring Hastings. She was afraid somebody in the house, Webster, of course, would be arrested. Being in love with him, she never would have suspected him unless there had been concrete, undeniable evidence of his guilt. Do you grasp that reasoning? Sure I do, Mr. Crown condemned himself. What I'm wondering is why I didn't see it long ago. She, too, you recall, was looking out of a window on that side of the house, scarcely fifteen yards from where the crime was done. It's not hard to believe that she saw what her father saw, the murder or the murderer. Mr. Crown, if you can make her or her father talk, you'll get the truth of this thing, the truth and the murderer. And look at Judge Wilton's part. You asked me why I went to his office this morning. I went because I'm sure he knows the truth. Didn't he stay right at Webster's side when old Hastings interviewed Webster yesterday? Why? To keep Webster from letting out, in his panic, a secret which both of them knew. The sheriff's admiration by this time was boundless. He felt driven to give it expression. Mrs. Brace, you're a Lulu, a Lulu by gravy. Sure, that was his reason. He couldn't have had any other. As for Webster himself, she carried on her exposition without emotion, without the slightest recognition of her pupil's praise, he proves the correctness of everything we've said so far. That secret which the judge feared he would reveal, that secret which old Hastings was blundering after, that secret, Mr. Crown, was such a danger to him that to escape the questioning of even stupid old Hastings, he could do nothing but crumple up on the floor and feign illness, prostration. Why, don't you see? He was afraid to talk. Everything you say hits the mark, agreed Crown, smiling happily. Center shots, center shots. You've been right from the very beginning. You tried to tell me all this yesterday morning, and fool that I was, fool that Hastings was. He switched to a summary of what she had put into his mind. It's right. Webster killed her, and Sloane and his daughter saw him at it. Even Wilton knows it, and he a judge. It seems impossible. By gravy, he ought to be impeached. A new idea struck him. Mrs. Brace, imperturbable, exhibiting no elation, was watching him closely. She saw his sudden change of countenance. He had thought, she didn't reason this out. Russell saw the murder, the coward, and he's told her. He ran away from... Another suspicion attacked him. But that was Jarvis's night off. Has she seen Jarvis? Impelled to put this fresh bewilderment into words, he was stayed by the restless, brilliant eyes with which she seemed to penetrate his lumbering mind. 
he was afraid of losing her cooperation. She was too valuable an ally to affront. He kept quiet. She brought him back to her purpose. "'Then you agree with me? You think Webster's guilty?' "'Think!' He almost shouted his contempt of the inadequate word. "'Think! I know! Guilty? The man's black with guilt!' "'I'm sure of it,' she said, curiously skillful in surrendering to him all credit for that vital discovery. "'What are you going to do, now that you know?' "'Make him talk. Turn him inside out. Playing sick, is he?' I'm going back to Sloanehurst this evening. I'm going to start something. You can take this from me. Webster will loosen that tongue of his before another sun rises. But that was not her design. You can't do it, she objected, her voice heavy with disappointment. Dr. Garnet, your own coroner, says questioning will kill him. Dr. Garnet's as thoroughly fooled as Hastings, and— she prodded him with suddenly sharp tone. You. That's right. He was crestfallen, plucking at his chin. That's hard to get around. But I've got to get around it. I've got to show results, Mrs. Brace. People, some of the papers even, are already hinting that I'm too easy on a rich man than his friend. Yes, she said evenly. And you told... I understood you'd act on our theory. I've got to. I've got to act. His confusion was manifest. He did not know what to do, and he was silent, hoping for a suggestion from her. She let him wait. The pause added to his embarrassment. What would... that is... he forced himself to the appeal... I was wondering, anything occur to you? See any way out of it? Of course, I know nothing about such procedure, she replied to that slowly, as if she groped for a new idea. But if you've got the proof from somewhere else, enough to warrant the arrest of Webster, her smile deprecated her probable ineptness, if Arthur Sloane, he fairly fell upon the idea, "'Right,' he said, clapping his hands together. "'Sloane's no dying man, is he? "'And he knows the whole story. "'Right you are, Mrs. Brace. "'He can shake and tremble and whine all he pleases. "'But tonight he's my meat. "'My meat. Right. "'Talk? "'You bet he'll talk.' "'She considered, looking at the opposite wall.' He was convinced that she examined the project, viewing it from the standpoint of his interest, seeking possible dangers of failure. Nevertheless, he hurried her decision. "'It's the right thing to do, isn't it?' "'I should think so,' she said at last. "'You, with your mental forcefulness, your ability as a questioner, why, I don't see how you can fail to get at what he knows.' Beside, you have the element of surprise on your side. That will go far toward sweeping him off his feet. 
He was again conscious of his debt of gratitude to this woman and tried to voice it. This is the first time, he declared, big with confidence, I felt that I had the right end of this case. When she had closed the door on him, she went back to the living room and set back in its customary place the chair he had occupied. Her own was where it always belonged. From there she went into the bathroom, and, as Hastings had seen her do before, drew a glass of water which she drank slowly. Then, examining her hard, smooth face in the bedroom mirror, she said aloud, "'Pretty soon, now, somebody will talk business. With me.' There was no elation in her voice, but her lips were, for a moment, thick and wet, changing her countenance into a picture of inordinate greed. End of chapter 14 Recording by Roger Moline